we're talking about lifespan development. But I want all y'all to get 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 your writing sticks out, and I want I'm gonna give you some stuff, and I want you to write it down because this chapter is going to tell you some things that I guess technically are correct, but I'm gonna tell you what you need to know. All right. As the human being is birthed into this world and we grow and develop from birth to about 18 years of age, there is a trend. All the vital signs are really, really fast in the beginning and they begin to slow and slow and slow and slow. And then we're about 18 years of age, your vital signs kind of level off to what a normal adult's vital signs will be. Now, why is that? Is it always right at, when they turn 18 years old, or is it... Just in that neighborhood. Oh, you're fine. Why do y'all think? Any clue? What is? Physical growth. But I think I just heard something. What's fully developed? I guarantee you at 18, your brain ain't really fully developed. Except for mine. I knew everything when I was 18. Anyhow. Well, what it is, is your respiratory system and your cardiovascular system hadn't really meshed and come together. And it's not really working together as effectively as it will when you're about 18 or older. Um, so basically, how many of y'all have got kids or had kids or, or cousins or neighbors or whatever with little kids that you've been around? And if they, if you got a big old drink on the table and they come pick it up and they take a big old gulp of that drink, as soon as they set it down, what's the first thing they do? Right? They take a deep breath because they don't have oxygen reserves because those respiratory system, cardiovascular system's not completely meshed yet. So it's just like a, think about a hot water heater, the ones with the tank where you got some hot water in reserves, but you got that other newfangled kind that it runs through and gets it hot as you use it. Think about a child and adult's cardiovascular system and respiratory system kind of like that. They do not have an oxygen reserve and they won't have it till they're about 18. So this is, I say all that to say this. Normal respiratory rate ranges. Normal respiratory rate ranges. Because as we go through uh, neonates, infants, we're going to go through toddlers, preschoolers, adolescents. We're going to go through all these groups. And they're going to give you different numbers for these respiratory rate ranges. But what you need to know is the normal respiratory rate range for an adult is 12 to 20 a minute. Normal respiratory rate range for a child is 15 to 30. And then an infant is 25 to 50. Again, you'll notice that pattern of the older you get, the slower your vital signs are, typically. All right? says that AEMTs must be aware of the changes a person undergoes at various stages of life. They may alter uh, the approach to patient care. Now, I know we haven't gotten to patient assessment yet, but one major change is like when you're doing a patient assessment on a pediatric patient as opposed to an adult, with the adult you take a head-to-toe approach. With a child or an infant you're going to take a toe-to-head approach. And just... Y'all need to write that down. You need to know that. And we'll come back to that inpatient assessment. But it's really important. Why is it important that you don't go straight to a child's head? Especially if they're around like two or three, when that whole stranger danger phase of life, how apprehensive is it going to make them if you go to grabbing their head right off the bat? Pretty apprehensive usually, huh? I'm not going to trust you. No. As soon as they don't trust you, 
they're done cooperating with you, and then that makes your job that much harder. All right? An infant is one month to one year of age. But I want you to change that a little bit and say an infant is birth to one year of age. Birth to one month is a more specific type of infant called a neonate. N-E-O-N-A-T-E. What's the medical prefix neo mean? New. How about the root word nate? Born. Newborn. Person. New person. I like that. So an infant is birth to one year of age, but birth to one month is more specifically a neonate. And at this age, they develop at a startling rate. The younger the person, the faster the pulse rate in respirations. Why? Don't have what? <laughs> okay, that's true too. But we're still getting back to that respiratory system and the cardiovascular system is not completely meshed yet. Okay. Blood pressure directly corresponds to the patient's weight. That's kind of true throughout life. And normal body temperature for a neonate is 98 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And infants, 96.8 to 99.6. Birth weight is usually about 6 to 8 pounds. If a child is born weighing less than about 5 pounds, they're considered premature. And, of course, their weight doubles within the first six months and then triples by the end of the first year. <clears throat> At birth, a neonate makes a transition from fetal to independent circulation. Fetal circulation, obviously, is the umbilical cord going back to the uh, uh, placenta. The mother, it's uh, getting the nourishment directly from the mother. And then obviously, uh, after birth, it's that old independent circulation. The umbilical cord's not there anymore. The, the child has its own circulatory system. It says here that a child's or an infant's first breath must be forceful. Why is that? Kickstart everything. Yeah, it's true. It kickstarts everything, but what specifically, what specifically is the benefit of those first breaths being forceful? It gets all of that amniotic fluid out of their alveolar sacs, too. Especially if they cry. I used to do what to babies when they're born? See, we don't quit whooping them from birth on through to adulthood. We messing up all over, ain't we? Now you got to rub them firmly. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, give them to sign a waiver. <laughs> sign a waiver. So anyhow, that is why. Neonates are primarily nose breathers. And what's something else that's specific to neonates and infants? Like, we sat here and talked about the respiratory system and what we consider adequate breathing, right? And what's the number one thing we're looking for to determine whether somebody's breathing is adequate? Huh? I can't hear you. Skin's going to tell the tale. But if you're looking at them, that rise and fall of the chest, right, is what is, goes a big, large way toward determining whether they're breathing adequately or not. It's called tidal volume. Well, how might that mess you up if you're, if you're counting the respirations on a neonate or an infant? Well, you got to count fast. Is the chest really going to rise and fall that much? What's going to be going up and down, with, especially with an infant? That belly is going to be going up and down, up and down. Because those ribs are not bones yet. They're primarily cartilage. So they don't really 
react the way they will as an adult when those intercostal muscles and diaphragm contract. They don't really stretch out like that. So you would count the, how many times their little belly goes up and down. But since they are nose breathers, a little bit of congestion in the nose could be a big problem for them, right? I'm not saying that if they get congested, they're going to die. That's not what I'm saying. But it's really going to aggravate them. They're going to cry and things of that nature. And the whole, I guess if, it's, if they're congested enough, it could be like a little bit of a choking hazard. Rib cage is less rigid. Ribs set more horizontally. Um, and if you're ventilating or providing ventilation for an infant or a neonate, just remember that their lungs are smaller. Therefore, the bag's going to be smaller, right? But it really doesn't matter what size bag you have, as long as the mask is the right size, right, where you can get a good seal. And you can have a bag that big around. But as you squeeze in that thing, you're watching that chest going up and down, right? And as soon as the chest stops rising, what do you do? Stop squeezing. It's full, right? And if you continue to squeeze, where is the overflow going? Into the stomach. And what's coming back up with that air shortly thereafter? Mm. A whole bunch of niceness. All right. What's that? Sir Isaac Newton said, what goes up must come down. Well, when you're talking about ventilating patients, what goes down is going to come back up. And it's bringing friends. <laughs> so once you squeeze in that bag now obviously you're going to use an infant bag on an infant you're going to use an adult bag on an adult because that's the right thing to do but really it doesn't matter as long as when you see that chest stop rising you stop squeezing that makes sense though don't it alright alright the nervous system its evolution continues after birth a neonate is born with certain reflexes, and you need to know these. So, Adam, why don't you look in the book and tell us what the Moro reflex is? Uh, the sternal reflex, happens when an infant is surprised by something or someone. The infant opens up his or her arms wide, spreads their fingers, and seems to grab them. That's the Moro reflex, the startle reaction type deal. Arms go out and fingers go out wide. Elizabeth, what's the Palmer grasp? Uh, when an object's placed in the infant's palm, it's going to grab it, right? All right. The rooting reflex, Mr. Walter, what's the rooting reflex? Rooting reflex takes place when something. Touches an infant's cheek, the infant will instantly turn his or her head toward the touch. That's, that helps them feed, right? And then the sucking reflex, Hannah? Again, it gets back to survival and eating and feeding. Moral reflex, palmer grasp, rooting reflex, and sucking reflex. You need to know those. What are the fontanelles? Huh? What do we call them, though, for, you know, in, in an infant? Soft spots. You got two of them, right? Anterior and posterior. <coughs> and that's what it is. That's where the bones. It comprises the cranium haven't closed together yet. The little suture joints haven't completely closed. And there's a spot there where the bone is not. They allow the head to be molded. Eventually, they bind together and form suture joints. And this is what you need to know. A depressed fontanelle or one that's sunken in means that the infant is dehydrated. If it's bulging out, that is a sign of intracranial pressure. Something has happened. The little baby's bleeding inside of its head. Growth plates aid in lengthening bones. 
the epiphyseal plates. That was on the test, wasn't it? Bones grow in thickness by building on themselves. And an infant's muscle accounts for 25% of total body weight. As an adult, where are our formed elements in blood? Our red blood cells, white blood cells, where are they formed in the adult body? To inside the, the intermedullary canal of the long bones. As an infant, where are they formed? In the liver. Yeah. The renal system, um, especially infants and neonates, their urine is primarily water at that point. So they can easily become dehydrated. Um, as you get older, you start filtering out more of that uric acid that is combined with that water to make urine, right? Um, the immune system, passive immunities for the first six months, and where do they get their passive immunities from? Mother. The mother. And if the child is breastfed, he or she will get additional antibodies from the mother via the breastfeeding. What's that child saying? Stop. Stop, stop what? <clears throat> Don't touch me. Do what? He's touching my stomach. What else could he be saying? Okay. I want candy. Oh Lord. Yes. Yes, he could be saying that too. I'm tired, I need a nap. Tired, I need a nap. Could be saying I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm cold, I'm hot, I got gas. Uh, most anything, right? I need a translator. Yeah. Well it don't work like that. But I tell you, a crying baby is a good baby as far as we're concerned. Not for mom and daddy. They do everything to make them stop crying. But if you walk in the door and that infant or that child is crying, what do you automatically know? Breathing. It's got a good, clear airway. And that's really what you need to know for that moment, right? And if they're breathing, what else is happening? You know they got a heartbeat if they're breathing. You can't. It, maybe it's not going the other way. You can have a heartbeat and not be breathing, but if you're breathing, you got a heartbeat. Don't make that mistake on the radio, by the way. It's happened. All right. Uh, psychosocial changes begin at birth. They evolve as infants interact with and react to their environment. Crying is the main method of communicating any type of distress. Now, infants can develop secure attachments or anxious avoidant attachments with caregivers. Now, there's some definite terms you need to know. And as soon as I say this, you're going to think of at least one person you, you knew in high school or wherever. And, of course, don't call no names. But that secure attachment and anxious avoidant attachment. What does it mean if someone has an anxious avoidant attachment with a caregiver? Any ideas? Well, actually, they've kind of gotten used to that at this point. They, well, every time they would cry or they would need something from their caregiver, they didn't get it. They didn't form any bonds with anybody. So these people later on in life are the, the ones that don't really have to have people around. Y'all know at least one of them. And again, you ain't got to call no names, but they may or may not need other people around they don't have a bond with anybody they just kind of they're kind of good with it okay that's anxious avoidant attachments separation anxiety is common in older infants uh, and again be very cautious and careful about deciding what's normal and what's not because my normal ain't your normal and so on and so forth 
But infants, if you walk into the room, you're a complete stranger. That infant's never seen you before. They should become apprehensive of you being in that room. You're outside of their norm, you know what I mean? And they should really not like that. And they're really not going to like it if you try to separate them from the ones that they do have a bond with. The caregiver, mama, daddy, grandparents, whoever. If you try to separate them, they're not going to like that at all. Infants desire a world to be planned, organized, and routine. That's really true for all of us, isn't it? Whether we want to admit it or not. If, uh... Ah, I ain't getting into that. Toddlers, one to three, and, and I'm going to remind you of the conversation I said a little while ago. 12 to 20, 15 to 30, 25 to 50, right? Those are the normal respiratory rate ranges that you need to know. So a toddler is one to three years of age. And again... Vital signs are starting to slow as they get closer and closer to 18. The rest of that stuff, don't worry about it. Preschoolers, three to six years of age. Again, what's the normal respiratory rate range for an adult? 12 to 20. A child, 15 to 30. An infant, you got to know that. You ought to be able to say that in your sleep. Because that's normal. Preschoolers, their weight gain begins to level off. Passive immunity is lost. What they may have may not have gotten from mama during birth is kind of starting to go away. Neuromuscular growth makes progress. The renal system begins to develop. So they're producing that actual uric acid now to go with that water. And teething begins. A wonderful, wonderful stage. Um, I'll back up just a little bit. It's funny how the older mind works, but we're talking about the fontanelles being sunken in if an infant is dehydrated. Another way to check is ask the caregiver how many times that day the diaper's been changed. And if they say, well, come to think of it, I hadn't changed it in, in hours. And then you get them to check, or you check, and that diaper is dry, that means that, that infant is dehydrated. Okay? I'm wondering who took that picture instead of keeping that baby from falling. Because that's what he's doing, if you look at it. Them little legs ain't fixing to catch all that. All right. Scholars and preschoolers learn to speak and express themselves. And that separation anxiety that we talked about in the uh, toddlers peaks at about 10 to 18 months of age. That just sounds like a National Registry question. Okay. They're beginning to master basic language, figuring out how to interact with and play with other kids. And at this age, especially the preschoolers, they're beginning to understand truly cause and effect. In other words, up until this point, if they've fallen, scraped their knee, or they know they got a boo-boo and something hurts, right? Up until this point, they kind of take it as, as it was punishment for them doing something wrong, okay? But once they reach this age, they're beginning to understand, well, yeah, I fell on concrete, hit my knee, that hurt. They understand or begin to more so understand cause and effect. Have we talked about these yet? 
pre-conventional reasoning, conventional reasoning, and post-conventional reasoning. Has, has that come up yet? I don't think you have. Pre-conventional reasoning is when you make decisions, and we're talking, you know, toddlers, preschoolers, or whatever, where you make decisions based on whether you think you're going to gain some type of reward or avoid some sort of punishment. You do what you do either to get something or to not get something, if you know what I mean. Okay? That's your pre-conventional reasoning. Conventional reasoning is nothing more than good old peer pressure. What's everybody else doing? Then I must do it too, right? So our goal in life should be for us all to reach post-conventional reasoning. That's when you make your decisions based on your set of ethics and morals and ideals. Is it right to you? That shapes and guides why you do and what you do. Some of us never get there, right? They hung up in that conventional reasoning, huh? All right. Ages 6 to 12 are school-age kids. Uh, the vital signs are starting to get a lot closer. Um, but again, what's the normal respiratory rate range for uh, an adult? Child? Infant? What's normal pulse rate, resting pulse rate for an adult? 60 to 100. Anything slower than 60 is called what? Bradycardia. Brady meaning slow. Anything above 100 is said to be tachycardia. Tachy, T-A-C-H-Y. We ain't talking about the clothes they're wearing. We're talking about the fact that their heart's fast. It's fast. 6 to 12, again, vital signs begin to get closer to those in an adult. Um, at this age, they also become more and more conscious about protecting their own privacy. Modesty kind of starts kicking in. Most children grow about 4 pounds and 2.5 inches each year. Brain activity increases in both hemispheres. And the permanent teeth begin to come in. Continuing with the psychosocial changes, critical time where children learn reasoning. Oh, look at here. Pre-conventional, conventional, post-conventional reason. What did we say pre-conventional reasoning was? Or not get in trouble, right? Conventional? Post-conventional? It's when your own, own person, right? Could be good, could be bad. That's when you begin to develop your self-concept, self-esteem, things of that nature. All right. Now, you're about to hear some things about teenagers that if I didn't tell you tonight, you probably would never figure out on your own. I know when I was 17, my parents didn't know nothing. It's, but it's crazy. The older I get, the more I figure out they, they knew <laughs> I was the dummy. Ages 12 to 18, again, the vital signs begin to level off. Two to three, rapid growth spurt. Males kind of stop growing about what age? Not stop growing, but you know what I mean. You don't hit that spurt. About 15, girls about 16. Reproductive systems mature. And secondary sexual development takes place. Kind of on subject, kind of off subject, but you should hear Saturday... When we're talking about CPR, the difference between a child and an adult is male is going to be chest and underarm hair. Females is going to be development of breasts. That's how you know the difference between a child and an adult when it comes to CPR. All right. Adolescents and their families often deal with conflict. So this is that part that you wouldn't have known. Privacy becomes a huge issue. 
And adolescents may struggle to create their own identity. They just might. And, believe it or not, rebellious behavior can occur. Hmm. Peer pressure is a major factor in growth. Teenagers are, are very conscientious about not only their privacy, but scars and the fear of some sort of permanent disability is really high in the teenage years. But the upswing of this is that antisocial behavior is going to peak in about the eighth or ninth grade, okay? And they may show interest in sexual relations. Yep. All right, early adults, 19 to 40. An early adult is 19 years of age to 40 years of age. And from about, raise your hand if you're 26 or older. So y'all already on downhill slide. Okay. Pre-midlife crisis. <laughs> Pre-midlife. Quarter-life crisis. Okay. Yeah, whatever. If I had one now, that means I'm going to be here to at least 100. So, it depends. I got I got conditions. When I'm unable to do certain things for myself, it's, it's time for the kid to check out. And y'all can fill in the blank. From 19 to 25, the body should be functioning at its optimal level. Raise your hand if you're between 19 and 25. Enjoy it. <laughs> Enjoy it. All right. Lifelong habits are solidified, and that's a fact. Hey, all y'all just raise your hand. If you're not used to exercising, if you don't get out there and exercise, if you're not watching what you're eating, and you got all these bad habits, staying up late, and all this other crap, you're gonna you're gonna look like this. <laughs> so, whatever you do now is gonna stick with you. I promise you. So establish good habits now. Because shortly after 25, subtle erosion begins. Somebody throw some silk fence up around my ass. All right. As an early adult, life centers on work, family. There's a decent amount of stress there. You will be striving to create a place for yourselves and settle down. Congratulations, it's one of the more stable periods of your life. So if you're in chaos now, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> All right, here we go. Middle adults. These are some smart people right here. Between 41 and 60, vital signs are still pretty much the same. Body is still functioning at a high level. However, you begin to have some vulnerabilities. Okay. Especially if you work in emergency services and don't wear your hearing protection. I guarantee you, you're going to be like me. Vision and hearing loss. It, the struggle's real, I'm telling you. And cardiovascular health becomes an issue. In all seriousness, guys, and, when, and I'm, what I'm about to tell you, some of y'all has already heard the story today, but I tell jokes sometimes, but this is 100% no joke. This really happened today. 27-year-old firefighter at our department had a stroke today. He's in recruit class. Going to graduate Friday. Had a stroke. So things that, and the point to all this isn't to make you feel bad for this guy because the end of this story is we got him to the hospital. They pushed out to place TPA. And then instantly we threw him in the back of our ambulances and hauled freight to Grady. And by the time we got to Grady, the clock's gone. The stroke went away. Because we treated aggressively. When I say we, I'm pretty much talking about Noonan Hospital. For those that hate Noonan Hospital, it ain't the same place. At one point in time, I wouldn't have taken my dog there. And when, I got, when they got in the back of my ambulance, I encouraged people not to go there. I did that for years. But it's a different place now. It really is. So, anyhow, he's doing good. 
they're going to figure out why he had this clot. Probably come from his foot because he had a surgery about two weeks ago. And you, when we get to cardiovascular accidents, you know, excuse me, uh, cerebrovascular accidents, we'll talk about the risk factors, and that's one of them. But the point is things are happening at earlier and earlier ages for people. Back when I was younger, someone had a heart attack, man, they was in their 50s or 60s at least, and 50 was young. That's 30-year-old folks having heart attacks every day anymore. Hey, look here. Wait a minute, where'd it go? Where'd it go? Oh. That and all the crap they're putting in our food, in our sedentary lifestyle, y'all better think about that. All right, and I'm, I know I'm not a poster child for good health, but hell, I know better. I <laughs> right, don't pay attention to that first part. All right, continue with middle adults, which is 41 to 60. becomes more difficult to control weight. And if you are female, menopause, you can look forward to that in your 40s and 50s. Cancer increases. Medical problems like diabetes may begin. But exercise and healthy diet can diminish the effects of aging. Not going to make it stop. There's only one alternative to getting old. And that's die young. Middle adults are focusing on achieving life goals. Uh, begin to readjust their lifestyles. Not only do they have children that are leaving home between 41 and 60, what might be happening to their parents? Well, if not dying, they might be moving in, right? You're dealing with kids leaving, but sometimes you're dealing with parents coming back or coming to you, I should say. Uh, generally, the middle adults have the physical, emotional, and, and spiritual reserves to handle these things. Um, and again, maybe caring for children, leaving for college, and aging parents as well. Late adults are 61 and older. 61 and older. Life expectancy is constantly changing. Right now in this country, it's about 78 years of age. You're expected to live to at least 78. Again, long as I can do that one thing, I hope to live to be 500. Um, again, you know, how old you're actually going to live depends on a lot of things. Your access to health care, especially in your younger informative ages, uh, the year you were born. Because, again, that gets back to what health care was available at the time. And where you were born, what country. What, and, but, again, it all gets back to access to health care. Vital signs are going to depend on overall health, medical conditions, medications taken. There are, and we'll talk, when we get into patient assessment, we'll talk about it more. But there are medications that you can take for certain things like hypertension that will slow your pulse rate. It'll slow your heart rate down, okay? And we said normal resting rate for an adult pulse is what again? 60 to 100, right? Well, when we're up moving around or whatever, for it to be in the 80s or whatever would be perfectly normal probably. Um, but if you're on these medications for blood pressure, your resting pulse rate may be in the 40s. So I want you to think about that. Uh, if we know normal is 60 to 100 and you don't get a good history and you don't know that they've got a history of high blood pressure and they're taking these beta blockers and they're unconscious, you see that rate of 40s, you might think, uh-oh, they're about to buy a pacemaker, right? Their heart's going too slow. So the point to that is you've got to get a good and thorough and accurate patient history. So it always helps you figure out what's going on. All right. Somebody that's taking multiple meds at one time, there's a name for that. The medical prefix poly 
means many. Polypharmacy. That's when someone takes multiple medications. Polypharmacy. I'm not telling you all older adults take many medications, but I am telling you it's not uncommon. And as we go through these next few slides about late adults, just understand everything's wearing out. If it was, everything's wearing out. Begin to shrink and all other kind of stuff. Cardiovascular system declines with age, largely due to arthrosclerosis. Heart rate and cardiac output decreases. The vascular system begins it begins to become stiff and the ability to produce replacement blood cells declines therefore the blood volume declines what happens to your brain shrinks so if the brain shrinks inside of that cranial vault how may it become harder to assess or, or properly assess a, ger- a geriatric patient that's maybe taking a blow to the head. If we take a blow to the head and we start bleeding inside that cranial vault, it's going to be apparent pretty quickly, right? They're going to go unconscious. They're going to projectile vomit, go unconscious. Pupils may be uneven, right? All those signs. Why would it be more difficult to find that in the geriatric patient? There's more room in the skull. The brain's smaller. So they have to bleed more to fill the voids before the pressure starts pushing. Simple hydraulics. So the the point to that is if you show up on an elderly patient that's been involved in some sort of traumatic event, just because they're not showing signs of increased intracranial pressure right now doesn't mean they won't be in five minutes. That's the point. Respiratory system, the size of the airway increases as smooth muscles weaken. Um, Surface area of the alveoli decrease, therefore you can diffuse less oxygen for carbon dioxide. The lungs become less elastic. And muscle weakening with age can lead to airway uh, collapse that may produce wheezing. Your vital capacity decreases, residual volume increases. Y'all stretch yourself for a second. We'll get started back, continuing with the late adults, 41 to 60, late adults. It's not always the case. But people tend to slow down physically, but do not decrease their food intake. Uh Uh-oh. Insulin production drops off. What does insulin do for us? This isn't a diabetes lecture, but what does insulin do? It allows sugar to get into the cells. So if, if we're eating the same, not doing as much physical activity, and we don't have as much insulin, what's happening to this sugar? Building up in the bloodstream, right? Yeah. Metabolism decreases. Um, changes in mental status may be the result of blood glucose level changes. If anybody of any age is acting a little bit outside of what their family or, or caregivers describe as normal, um, blood sugar. You should check blood sugar on every place that you ever go to. But really, you want to check them. And in the late adults, the reproductive system changes to some extent. Filtration from the kidneys decline. Filtration from everything declines that's supposed to filter. So therefore, your ability to get rid of waste products from your body system slows. Um, And changes in gastric and intestinal function may inhibit nutritional intake and utilization all of those things from the from the insulin production dropping off to I mean these things your your sense of taste kind of starts to diminish after a while what's one of the first tastes that you start to lose 
salt. And buddy, I'm in trouble because I already put it on there. So, but if these things go away, there's a decrease in appetite to begin with. Some of that's natural. Some of it's because of these changes. Um, you're going to get less, I guess, nutritional value from what you're eating because you're not eating as much. Teeth become weaker. Saliva secretion decreases. Gastric motility slows. What What's that we're talking about? To push your stuff through your intestinal tract? Peristalsis. It slows. Gallstones become increasingly common. And anal sphincter changes reduces elasticity. Don't trust the fart. <laughs> I didn't make the rules. All right. Brain weight decreases. Your brain gets smaller. Motor and sensory neural networks become slower and less productive. Who's depressed already? Yeah, I am. Diminished number of brain cells. Loss of neurons. And sleep patterns change. I guarantee you the older you get, the harder it is to stay asleep. I used to think it's just because they didn't want to miss out on nothing. But now that's not it, turns out. Uh, age-related shrinkage creates a void between the brain and the outermost layer of the meninges. This is what we were talking about earlier. And peripheral nerve sensation is diminished or sometimes just misinterpreted. Most late adults can see or hear well. But some need glasses or, and or hearing aids. And it might be 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. You may be really, really tired. But if you run a call on a geriatric patient and they're trying to find their glasses and or their hearing aids, and you're just trying to do your assessment so you can get them in the back of the ambulance and get them gone so you can go ahead and go back and get in the bed, just keep in mind, if they can't see you well, they can't hear you well, how apprehensive they are. And if you just take that additional minute or two, help them find what they need, it's really going to get you back to the station that much faster in the long run because they're going to be able to cooperate more because, hell, they can see you or they can hear you. And it's called just being a good person, too. If an elderly person needs your help do something, you need to do it. So... Who is, and this is not a social commentary or an opinion on my part or anything, but who's most likely to attempt or threat suicide, you think? What age groups? Teenagers. Who's more likely to be successful? Especially older males. That's just a fact. You got to look at what they, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're I guess anybody, male or female, doesn't matter, about 80 years old today. What all did they live through? What have they seen? And what were the attitudes toward little boys growing up back when they was a little kid? If they fall, fell and scraped their knee and started crying a little bit, what probably? Throw some dirt in it. Probably get a smack in the back of the head, right? Because boys don't cry, right? So you got to remember, these are the type of folks that are just found because they went somewhere and did something. They didn't complain. They didn't say nothing. Nobody just went and did it. So sometimes they need to be reminded of their self-worth. You have to remember, too, male or female, at this age, they spend a lifetime of taking care of other people, right? Had their kids, maybe their parents, other family members, brothers, sisters, or whatever. They spent their lives being the ones that everybody else counted on. And now they have to count on other people. So keep that in mind when you're in their home at 2 o'clock in the morning and they're aggravating you. Okay? That's my soapbox. But they have to be reminded of their self-worth sometimes because a lot of times it's not there anymore. Um, 
this last paragraph or phrase here um, refers to a phrase. It says, until about five years before death, obviously we're talking about natural deaths, okay? About five years before death, most people retain high brain function. But about five-year mark before you're going to die, that's when you start seeing that decline. And brain, I'm not talking about disease processes like Alzheimer's or anything like that. I'm talking about an otherwise healthy individual, just older, about five years before death, is when the brain function begins to decline. And I could ask you to find that in your book, but that might take you a minute. But the name for that is called... Wasn't that hard after all, was it? <laughs> the terminal drop hypothesis. And what's a hypothesis? Educated guess. Terminal drop hypothesis. Uh, the old folks that you be running calls to now, those, those are the baby boomers, right? Why were they called baby boomers? Like right after World War II, when World War II ended and all the soldiers come home, nine months after that, all of us were born. That's a fact. Baby boomers, that's why they're called that. Um, uh, that but that's the age group that really accounts for a high portion of the EMS calls, regardless of the apparatus you're riding on. Uh, as elderly populations grow, we have the responsibility to accommodate their needs. Financial limits may restrict access to health care or medication. Some of these older people, like I told you, they were raised up not to complain because if they complained, they got in trouble. And if you wanted something in this world, you went and got it yourself. You didn't depend on nobody else. These are the morals and the ethics and the values that they were raised with. So now imagine an 85, 88-year-old male who can't afford his medication today. What's he going to do? Is he going to ask for help? No. He, he might cut them in half thinking they'll last twice as long, right? Pills don't work like that, however. He, listen, for it to be sold in the United States, the, the pill has to be within 5% accuracy, okay? In other words, if this says it's a 100-milligram pill... It has to at least have 95 and can't have more than 105 milligrams in there. But that doesn't mean it's evenly distributed in that peel. You see what I'm saying? So if you cut it in half, you could get too much, or not technically too much since you're supposed to take the whole peel anyhow, but you get the point. It's not going to be, they're not going to stay in that therapeutic range like that. They might get too little. And the elderly need to face their own mortality. Isolation and depression can be challenges. Again, if they're old enough, they've already buried spouses, definitely buried parents, brothers, sisters, maybe even buried some of their own kids. And, and that's something they deal with every day. So be nice to them. In summary, we said all this. <laughs>